0: Hello and welcome to The reverend Show. Behavioral science is a fascinating topic in general, but as it relates to revenue operations, there are things I didn't even realize until I listened to Jess and Doug in this episode. I know that's extremely vague, but if you're into behavioral science... And if you're into RevOps, you're going to love this episode. There are three principles that our hosts cover today. Certainty and possibility effects, prospect theory, and anchoring. I will let them explain what these are and give you examples right here on The RevOps Show.
1: Jess. Doug. What's going on? This this week's been a hell of a year. Wait, I. Someone told me you had a light week this week. Is that what someone lied?
2: Someone I heard, lied. I, I heard that like basically today was sun and relaxation.
1: Yeah, that's 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 a way to describe it.
2: I thought, I heard something about bonbons and, my you heard my you heard wrong, you
1: heard wrong, wrong. you heard wrong.
2: You heard wrong. Crazy week, Jess. Crazy week. Crazy
1: week. Exciting and crazy.
2: Exciting and crazy. Yeah, that's probably uh that that that's a fair uh, yeah, I don't know. My brain doesn't seem to be working, Jess. Um <laughs> I'm, I'm 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 I appear to be a little bit out of it all of a sudden. I guess you're gonna have this to carry is... the show today.
1: <laughs> With the topic we have, that's gonna be um, that's gonna be scary.
2: <laughs> so what do you want to just... Disney next? <gasps>
1: I was just talking to uh, last night about that. <laughs> we're trying, we're ready to plan the next one.
2: So, so serious question. How, okay. How excited are you for the Super Bowl halftime show on Sunday? Not at all. Not at all. Do you know who's performing?
1: I don't even know who's performing. This oh. is how bad it is.
2: Wow. Jess, who's, we really have to get you out of the cave.
1: We do. We do. Who's performing? Rihanna. Oh, is it? Okay. So I thought it might be Rihanna, but I, didn't want to misspeak. Um I mean, okay.
2: <laughs> what if the Backstreet Boys were doing the halftime?
1: Oh show? my god. Oh my god, that's the dream. That's the dream right there. I would be so, so excited.
2: So Backstreet Boys at halftime of the Super Bowl for you is Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Correct. For me.
1: Correct. But you've already seen Bruce. Per- Bruce has performed at the halftime show. I you've
2: know. Understand. Who who do you think has been the best halftime performance?
1: Oh, mm. I mean, so it's going to be controversial because he's controversial. But I I mean, I Michael Jackson. I love Michael Jackson. I thought that was that was a great halftime show.
2: Uh, I mean, I think it's clearly Justin Timberlake.
1: No. Oh, just... <laughs> You're just trying to get me riled up. Um, I walked right into that. I didn't even see where you were going with that. I walked right into it.
2: No, actually, um, I, I would have to say Prince.
1: Prince is my number. Like, Prince is. I was actually going between Michael Jackson and Prince. Prince was pretty, pretty incredible.
2: And um, so, so I actually, you know, I, the one, the one thing I regret in my youth was I never really got into Prince. I never gave him credit for, for right. what he was. It was kind of the whole. You know, there was a little bit of the tribal element because because he was big when Bruce Springsteen was big, and it was are you rock and roll, are you this, and
1: so I feel the same way. But see, when I was coming up, it was when he was the artist, and it was just like, okay, he's he's just being eccentric for the sake of it. Was my was what I had in my oh, right, head. Right. I never appreciated the music because of that, and like well, now now it's incredible. Like now, I love him.
2: Well, do you know why he did that? No. So. So I was, um, I kind of felt the same way. Then I learned later, Matt, I felt really bad afterwards. Um, this is kind of one of the problems of, of, of the music industry. So he was not, um, so the record, um, the, the, the record studio, Now uh, what they, whoever the company, the record company, the record mm-hmm. company, Rosie just gave me a big advance. Bruce Springsteen, baby, March 27th, number 47. So for me, um, you three more to go. <laughs> so he was not allowed, um, to publish music under his name. The record company owned the catalog oh. and owned Prince. And so the way he was threw his, his middle of getting finger at him was he became a symbol that was the artist formerly known. And that's why he, he he actually, apparently he sarcastically referred to it as the artist formerly known as Prince because he wasn't allowed to call himself Prince. I didn't
1: realize and that. then he became <laughs>
2: Prince again when he, he got the ownership of that back. So it was actually he wasn't actually being eccentric. At so all.
1: this wasn't this wasn't like a Kanye crazy type scenario. There's yeah it wasn't a Kanye was crazy like and it wasn't John
2: Cougar became John Cougar Mellencamp oh. became John Mellencamp. It was yeah he was okay. Um, although you know why John Cougar became went from John Cougar. So actually he was Johnny Cougar, John Cougar, John Cougar Mellencamp, John Mellencamp.
1: I do not know why he became John Cougar or Mellencamp though.
2: <laughs> well, do you know why he became John Mellencamp? No. Because that's his name. <laughs> okay. His name is John Mellencamp, and his first album they position him as he was gonna be a teenage Oh that's club, what did. And so he was Johnny Cougar.
1: Oh, okay. Gotcha. Then
2: then he had his breakthrough as John Cougar. That was Jack and Diane. Right. Et so then, then all of a sudden he became famous as John Cougar and it drove him crazy. Cause that wasn't who he was. So he wanted to go to John Mellencamp, but they're like, wait, no, you can't go to John Mellencamp because no one, yes, will know nobody who knows are. who. So he was yeah. John Cougar Mellencamp to John Mellencamp. I've seen John Mellencamp front. three times front row center. Front row center. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yep. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. So, um, fun music facts. <laughs> so I, and I'll tell you why. I mean, so, so, I, I get and, and, and I respect Michael Jackson, the, the performer. Prince's performance was better. And and you can't Purple Rain in the rain. <laughs> it, it rained during Purple Rain. Correct. Oh, yeah.
1: yeah. Purple Rain in the Rain. I knew that's where you were going. I mean just, the good the, the gods just delighted us all.
2: Now, now I loved Springsteen because it was just like twelve minutes of uh, so
1: I'm not a huge Springsteen fan, but Springsteen's up there for me on Super Bowl halftime performances. I'm not, I'm not a huge, he, he, I mean, it's, it was great.
2: Cause, cause, well, so, so first off the thing that people have to understand about Bruce Springsteen is what made Bruce Springsteen famous was seeing Bruce Springsteen live. Right. You know, his manager today is John Landau, who was a, who was a writer and the famous line was I've seen the future of rock and roll and his name is Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. And so, you know, Springsteen sets the high bar for a concert. Um, and, and he was the first one. Prince kind of did it. But he just said, you know what? We're going to like, we're not going to make it, you know, we're not going to have play. the left shark and we're just going to, it's just going to be 12 minutes of in, uninterrupted rock and roll concert. Um, yes. Yeah, so that's why I, that's why I enjoyed it. Yep. Um, so we're going to talk about Super Bowl halftime shows, right, Jess? That's yeah, we point. are.
1: We are. Okay. Yeah. So who's your Our top
2: five? Who's your pick? I'm sure this will be out after the game. So who are you picking? Do you don't even know who's in the game? Let's start there.
1: <laughs> um, it's uh Kansas City and the Eagles. I know the Eagles are in because I I don't like the Eagles, so I'm gonna go Kansas City.
2: So we're both we're both picking the Chiefs. We're both picking the Chiefs. I, mean, right, I guys, have no about?
1: idea if it's a good pick, but that's who I'm picking.
2: <laughs> so do you watch the Super Bowl?
1: I usually do, but so this will be the first year that we don't have. So we went full off of cable <laughs> this past year. So this will be the first year that we don't have, like I'd have to have a streaming service that's showing it.
2: You can watch it over the air. Well, yeah, so so maybe. Do you have an antenna on your TV? No. <laughs> no, so you're I don't. You've gone off the grid. Yeah. So, so are you a, when you watch the game, are you uh watch the game – or watch the commercials person?
1: Oh, no, no, no. I'm a watch the game person. So before we had kids, like, so I, if we didn't have kids, I would know absolutely who's in the football, who was in Super Bowl. I was a huge football fan. And then I had children and I don't follow sports as much as I used to. So
2: you hey, do you do Do you know what we're talking about today?
1: What are we talking about today?
2: So, you know, one of the seven disciplines of strategic rev ops is behavioral science. Right. And, and we haven't talked about it in a while. And so I thought it'd be a great idea if we had kind of a recurring element of this that, that in, okay. you know, from time to time, we talk about some of the key behavioral science, behavioral principles that any RevOps person, executive or growth executive should know. Okay. I can't think cool. of anything that would be more fun to talk about on the Friday before the Super Bowl than
1: than that, than behavioral science. Let's do it.
2: <laughs> so, which one do you want to talk about first?
1: Um, let's let's talk about certainty, possibility effects.
2: Okay. What would you like to know, Jess?
1: <laughs> so what 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 is it? What is that? What is what is possibility effects?
2: And and, and by the way, I have a feeling that today um, you're going to find out why I have a crush on, uh, Amos Tversky and, and Daniel Kahneman. So this is one of the, uh, principles that was, uh, popularized by, and, and identified by, um, by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. By the way, if you really want to, if, if, what we're talking about here today strikes a chord with you, if you haven't read or listened to the book, thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman, highly, highly recommend it. So, you know, one, one of the things that I think really gets down to, um, the the core of understanding why people do what they do and and why people behave the way they behave is that um people are inherently lazy
1: <laughs> I agree I just think it's a funny statement
2: and 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 by the way that's actually um encapsulated in the principle of the path of least resistance um here here's an interesting um evolutionary fact for you Jess evolutionary tidbit of trivia for you did you know it's the reason that we can walk and have hands is because we're inherently lazy. The reason
1: we can walk and have hands
2: the way we, we can walk on two legs
1: and how we, you so the mean reason how we, we have use, hands is how because we, use we can walk rails. on
2: two legs. Oh, I follow. Okay. Gotcha. And so, and the reason we can walk on two legs is because we're inherently lazy. And so what happened was, in, in the evolution of how our brain and body manifest is we, the calories that we didn't use up allowed us to, allowed our brain to mature and allowed other, um, digits and yeah, it was wow. the, 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 the I, now I, I apply that it's, it, it's, we're lazy. The laziest part of, of humans. I mean, the reason that we can do what we do is we have the large, we have basically the largest brains, right? Um, and our brains are really lazy.
1: Our brains are really lazy. Our brains okay. are really lazy.
2: So our, our our brains don't like to work. Um what what likes to work is our reptilian brain, the same brain that every animal ha- that every reptilian has. Right. But but our, you know, the 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 parts of the brain that are human like making those work takes a lot of energy. And so we don't want to make them work. Right? We want to run on autopilot. That's why we say, "Hey, Jess, how are you today?" You go I'm doing great, Doug. How are you? And I go, I'm doing awesome, Jess. How about you? Right? It's (laughs) because we're just kind of running on autopilot, right? Every Zoom call. (laughs) And an extension of that is we do not like to do math. Okay. We do not like to do math. And you know what part of math we like to do the least? What? Any math that exists between zero and one.
1: Ah, Yes. So, percentages and fractions.
2: <laughs> so we do not like percentages. You know what else our brain doesn't like? As a matter of fact, our brain can't tolerate... What? Conflict. Our brain can't tolerate conflict. Our brain can't tolerate gaps. Okay. You are good or you are bad. It is true or it is or it is false. We seek certainty. Okay. So what, what the certainty and possibility effects basically say... So, you know, to, to quote the official element, changes in the probability of gains or losses do not affect people's subjective evaluations in linear terms. So, so what this means is if you go from a chance of, if if I say you've got a 50% chance of winning or a 60% chance of winning,
1: mm-hmm. how will
2: that influence most people's decisions? It won't. Right. It won't. Now, now, now think about this. If I, if, if I were to tell you from a 50% chance of winning to a 60% chance of winning, mm-hmm. it will have less impact on you than if I told you, you went from a 90% chance of winning to a 95% chance of winning.
1: Is that because 95 is closer to certainty to a yeah.
2: hundred? Yeah.
1: Okay.
2: Right. It's a smaller difference. Right. By the way, it's a smaller difference. Absolutely. 10 points to 5 points. Yep. Right? But if you think about it, if I go from a 56 50% chance of winning to a 60% chance of winning, yep. I actually increase my chances by 20%. 10 over 50. Right. Whereas if I go from a 90 to a 95% chance of winning, I increase my chances of winning by 5.5%. So it's almost a 4x difference. Right. Right. And that's because, so if I tell you there's a 30% chance of rain, what do you think? It's not going to rain. It's not going to rain. Right. And so if it rains with a 30% chance of rain, we say the weatherman sucks. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so what you're going to see through this is, is how it, you know, the, the certainty and possibility effects. Flavor how people respond, react, interpret whatever's being done, which is also why, you know, we're going to talk about choice theory Mm -hmm. um, and and elements of choice theory here. You know, as we add more and more choices, we kind of break down and all of a sudden certainty goes away. And, And so if you can reduce the number of choices that someone's making, if you can, you know, provide the path. You know, one of the reasons that that point of view, like I, I I think it's even becoming a term, a category, point of view software, one of the reasons it works is I don't have to make decisions to move forward. It's kind of like I operate on that path of certainty rather right. than having to think. Now, from an organization, so it's like there's one element of understanding that in terms of how you craft the environment for people to work and thrive. right. But but the other element that you have to understand is that to make to, to enable people to excel in how they work you you're basically operating in in false environments and that's why models are so important right and so like what's the number one thing people use on average oh, Okay if, if, if I got you, you study if you study the stock market I don't know where the numbers are precisely right now but roughly speaking you know, on average, you're going to, you know, you should expect to make somewhere between nine and 11% um, in stocks on an annual basis, mm-hmm. except it's like only 6% of the time. Has the stock market ever returned nine to 11% in a year. Mm-hmm. right? So understanding that variance has a major effect on, 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 what's happening. So we talk with people all the time about averages. And I always like to say that the way I like to think about averages is, is it's the number that's always wrong. Right. So averages yeah. let us feel certain. Right? Oh yeah. Our average, yeah. Our, our average cycle time is 93 days. Okay, great. So what I know is this, this deal will almost never be 93 days. Right. Right. But, but we focus in on that 93 days. And by the way, are you ready for this? Depending upon what metric and how you go about calculating that ninety three days, the certainty principle says ninety three days. But yeah. what that really says is that fifty percent of the outcomes happen in less than ninety days, right? And fifty percent of the outcomes happen in more than ninety three days. And so, like one of the, one of my favorites is there have been a bunch of LinkedIn, HubSpot tips of we calculate our average days and then we build our automation. So that the close date, so we know it's going to be 93 days. Our average cycle time is 93 days. So we auto set the deal to 93 days. And I really want to go, why do you do that? <laughs> but I don't, I'm... I actually don't say that. You want to know why? Why? Because of the certainty, because of certainty and possibility effects. Because you know, that's why they're doing it. Because I know that's what's causing them to do that. That makes with I... a couple of other behavioral principles.
1: I'm proud of you that you don't that you don't say that to them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> What's next, Jess? I thought this was my mom. Is one. this So.
1: Well, it, it sometimes. next
2: time to get things started on the most um,
1: so is this cuz we we talk about deal probability and and I know you're not a you're not a huge fan of attaching probability to stage. Is this is this why you don't like attaching a probability to stage? Because it almost creates a layer like like I think people like it because it creates a layer of certainty on that on that probability, but like this seems attached to that a little bit to me.
2: Yeah, it's not why. Um it's why even if it was done the right way, I wouldn't like it. Um, mm-hmm. so so if you were gonna if you were gonna stage weight your stages, yeah, then you know the way you would do that it would it, you know you would do a regression analysis and you would say if it's in stage one, what percentage of these win stage two what percentage win stage three what percentage win, and so on and mm-hmm. so you, you you would tie it to that um and then that's where you know at, we, we probably get into law of averages more than it is this, but yes, the reason they the reason that everyone likes to do it is that we, so we now build our forecast on, well, you know, I've right. X amount in stage three, which is 40% because it, it, it lets, it lets me turn a probability and and make it feel a little bit more like a certainty. So there's some of that. The, the, the reason is that is that stage and, and deal probability have at best a loose correlation. Mm-hmm. So, so technically a deal in stage two has to have a higher probability than stage one. Right. On on the whole. Right. Right. But it, you know, it, 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 it creates so much noise and, and then you also can't learn from that. Right. So that's mm-hmm. why I like you know, the, and we've talked about that in previous episodes in terms right. of how we establish forecasting confidence.
1: Right. But yeah, so there's a little bit of that. Okay. Um, so so next, I want to move to prospect theory. So, wh- so what is prospect theory?
2: It's one of the things that enabled Kahneman and Tversky to win their Nobel Prize. It's the theory that led to their Nobel Prize um, in economics. Um, basically, it's why we, um, there's kind of two parts to it. It's why we're loss averse. Humans are loss averse. It takes roughly five to 10 times the, the amount of winning, the joy that you get from winning, you need about five to 10 times to, to equal the, the pain and distress from losing. So we will do far more to avoid loss than, than we will to gain. We, there's also an element that what prospect theory really hits on is that we don't value things for their utility. We value, so if we, if it's ours, we value it more than we would value it if it wasn't ours. So one of the experiments they ran was, and they still run these experiments, where you you give people a bunch of tchotchkes, right? And so you mm-hmm. have some, you know, pen, and and my job is, and I'm gonna, I'm going to give you an offer. What would I pay you for that pen? Okay. Right. But and then you're going to give me, you know, what would you be willing to sell that pen for? Your number is almost always going to be significantly higher than my number. Okay. What you, what I need to pay you for you to let go of it will be far more than left on my own. I'd be willing to pay um, to get it. So we will do more. We will do more to avoid losing something. It's also the um, there's also, it it kind of plugs into the omission commission bias, right? Which is if, if I do this, if if I decided to take a different route to work today, And I get into an accident, I'm Blaving likely to it. regret, why did I do that today? Yeah. Whereas if I got into an accident, not taking a different route, then's the chances. So here's a question for you. Here's a great mathematical question for you. Oh, boy. Um, This is not necessarily related. This is not prospect theory, but it kind of connects a little bit to what we're talking about and, and to loss avoidance and omission, commission, bias, et cetera. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and and by the way, this gets into why salespeople, people connected to sales, people connected to transactions make bad decisions in the middle of transactions. And this is also why you need to have a structure, Um, why planning it out and building it out before. It's kind of like what I'm going to get to is if you want to eat well this week, what's the best thing you can do? Buy healthy food. <laughs> no, there's something better than that. Eat healthy. Nope. Something better than that. What? plan what you're going to eat on Sunday for every day and then go out and buy for that. Because if you, because in that moment where it doesn't matter, you make Mm -hmm. that decision. Right. Right. So do you remember the show? Let's make a deal. I do. Right. So we've got door one, door two, door three Mm -hmm. behind one of those doors is a pile of cash for a million dollars of a million dollars. Okay. Tax free. We're covering the taxes for you (laughs) behind (laughs) another door is a goat. And then behind the other door is a chicken. Okay. All right. So pick door one, door two, door three. Door two. Okay. So I'm going to open up door one for you. Mm -hmm. We open up door one and what do we see? We see a chicken. Now I'm going to give you a choice. Do you want to stay with the door you chose door two, or do you want to switch to door three? What do you do? (laughs) Stick with door two. Okay. Now what's the right decision?
1: There is not one. There is. There is? Yes. What's the right decision?
2: Switch to door three. Why? You will dramatically increase the likelihood of winning if you switch to door three. How? Okay. (laughs) What is your probability of choosing the right one? I'm sorry, let me change this. What's the probability of choosing the wrong one? Two out of three. Which is, do you know what percent that is,
1: Jess? 66.66%. 67%. 67%. Got a
2: 67% chance of being wrong. Okay. Yeah. So the door you pick had a 67% chance of being wrong. Okay. We now have two doors. What's the likelihood that door three isn't the door?
1: 50%.
2: Right. So you go from a 67 by switching doors. You uh-huh. go from a 67% chance of being wrong to a 50% chance of being wrong. Okay. So That's which not... would you prefer? A 67% chance <laughs> of being wrong or a 50% chance of being wrong?
1: I would prefer a 50% chance of being wrong. So but, you but, but your argument is flawed.
2: It's not. <laughs> it is. It, it's actually absolutely positively not flawed. If you run the experiment, if you run the experiment, Thousands of times, switching the door is distinctly the best solution. People don't switch almost 90% of the time. By the way, when they run the test, when they run an equivalent test. Oh, on this animals, is
1: risk aversion.
2: When, when, when they run the test on animals, uh-huh, they animals are much more likely. They learn to switch much faster. Okay. So why do we not switch? Risk aversion. I don't want to lose what I have. I don't want to lose what I, and and again, prospect there. I value what I have more and here's what happens. So let's say, let's say you go, I switch Monty. Uh I switch to door three.
1: Yeah.
2: Wah, wah, wah. Here's the goat. And you go, Oh God damn it. I, yeah, I had the million dollars. I
1: had it. Yeah.
2: Right. Whereas if I say, if I open up door two and you stuck Mm -hmm. with it and it's the goat, what do you do? Them's the breaks. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So how many times are we looking at a situation where, you know, we're, we're dealing with a, a sales organization, a salesperson, and, you know, they start off with a great first conversation. Then things start to present themselves yeah. that aren't as positive, And we go, why, why aren't they adjusting? Right. So prospect theory feeds into sunk cost, sunk cost fallacy. Yep. Right. And so... One of the things as you're designing systems, and this is why what we like to do is we like to design checkpoints. I want to make you make another decision. Right. Right. And and one of the reasons for milestones and, and why do we have a sales development pipeline and it is, is we don't want like, okay, hey, there you go. Boom. Guess what? Ding, ding, ding. You won. Now we're in a new, right? Think about this. How many times is the game when you watched um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? How many times did a game change as you got to each point of safety? Right. right. Okay. New game. It's almost, yeah. right. You reset. Right. What 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 your risk parameters are? That all comes from prospect theory.
1: Gotcha. So we're risk averse.
2: <laughs> yeah. That's my takeaway. <laughs> but but it, you know it, but again it's more than risk averse. It's we value what we have mm-hmm. more. Right. So, so there, there there's a bias towards we overestimate what we know. We overestimate what we have.
1: Right. So how does that how does that come into play with kind of how you set your team up for working? And then, you know, I'm also curious about how that comes into play in the sales process with prospects.
2: So the the reason that we. You know, I, so I've seen exit criteria. I was going to say the reason that we said exit criteria in in pipelines is, and it's actually something that's become much more common, but it's not the approach that I see dominating when there is exit criteria is very different than our exit criteria. Mm And most exit criteria is, is either, and both very limited, Mm -hmm. like, okay, this is the check for the next stage or very, very process. These five things are, right. What we do with exit criteria is it's, it's increasingly causal. It, 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 it's progressing. And the reason that we do that is so that there's a clarity. So, so we're always going to assume we know more than we know. Right. Right. Prospect theory is a piece of it, but also I can't see what I don't see. Right. So, or put another way, Jess, what you see is all there is. And so by identifying that broader set and how we approach decision criteria. and, And by the way, when we look at decision criteria, there's, there's sale process criteria, but then there's also customer decision criteria. Like, for example, is the problem big enough? That is a, right. That is a decision criteria that we use that unfortunately not enough of our clients adopt. Right. I was actually on a, I was having a conversation with a salesperson today and you know, they're stuck, the the client is, or the prospect is, is looking at something and, you know, candidly where it stands right now, I I don't think a sale is going to occur. Um, or if it does, they're going to have to discount to an insane level because the expectations are, are unreasonable. And I, what I said to the rep was, look, I know you understand what the size of the problem is. Right. Right. But, but either the prospect doesn't, or they're not thinking of that while they're talking about this or they're just completely unreasonable. Yeah. And if they're completely unreasonable, then, you know, almost do whatever you want to do. I can't tell you what they're going to do. I mean, I would leave. That's where I would exit. But it's more likely that, that they're unaware or it's not connected. And so we've got to connect to that problem. But like the first question I always ask is, is the problem big enough? Right. And by the way, not, not objectively is the problem big enough. And, and so by defining that upfront, then when we do a debrief, A, it teaches the rep, it primes the rep to look for that. So I'm more likely to have a more realistic view. I'm more likely to look at my hand objectively, but mm-hmm. it also sets the stage for what that review looks like. Like, so when okay. we come in and we have that conversation because that's already been established and it's part of the ingrained process, um, it, it, it leads to better outcomes. Um, how does it play in, in, into the structure? Mm-hmm. Um. So here's an example. It's it's forcing function. There's a for like I I'm a big fan of forcing functions. So we're working with a client right now. They they have a they have a pretty extensive set of rules for how long a rep can own a lead or an opportunity, right. and when does it become open? In this and 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 the difficulty with that is there's always a story. There's a reason. There's confusion. It has uh, manual elements, etc. What, one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of target account strategies, right? And, and you know, this on, unless we don't have strength, in which case we have no choice. Right. But, but let's say I've got a thousand accounts. They could fit our target account criteria. I am likely to make our target account program somewhere in the 500 to 750 range. Right. Yeah. Well, what I'm going to do is I want to force you to let go. Right. I want to force you. And, 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 and by the way, I might say something like, um, like let's say we're going to reset our target accounts every quarter. I might say something like 20% of counts, 20% of your target accounts must be new. Right. Cause I, cause I know you're going to undervalue. Yeah. Right. And you're going to, no, 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 I need to hold No, no, no. I'm working them. I'm working them. Okay. That's fine. Right. Hey, it's great. You have, you have 80 slots. You have a hundred slots. If you yeah. want to take up one of the hundred slots with this and remember here's your bogey. Here's your target, right? right? This is what you're being, you know, this is the number you're being held to. If you want to use one of your hundred slots, if you think one of your hundred slots, and, and this also brings agency back into it, right? Right. And so right. what I'm doing is I'm I'm creating outside forces to go against that lost inversion, go against that. Um... By the way, what, what, what loss aversion does to a rep, what's the, what's the biggest, most common mistake a rep makes? They spend too much time on an opportunity.
1: I was going to say they hold on to an opportunity too long. Yeah.
2: Yep. Low deal quality. Right. Why, why do they hold on to it? I don't want to lose it.
1: Yeah.
2: Right. What, 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 by the way, this, this goes back into commission omission, right? What they're not accounting for is what are you losing because you don't have that time. Yeah. Early, early, early when I started, you know, imagine 0.1 and I looked at my calendar
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Do you know what my, you know, it was on my calendar. It was a big old bunch of nothing. Right. And, and, and the initial theory was we were going to, we were going to do coaching. I was going to coach individuals. Right. And, and I had opportunities where someone said, oh yeah, you know, I mean, I would do it for like $250 a month, which was below what, what my number was, where where I wanted to be. Believe it or not, I started at $500 a month. That was my initial target you know i would coach somebody for $500 a month right um you know time is like an airline seat right if, if the 11 to 12 hour goes by with nothing i don't get to charge for that hour ever again right right so i had a you know so that big old bunch of nothing on my calendar equaled a big old bunch of nothing on my incoming cash flow and there was a really good argument to say well $250 is better than nothing except if I had taken the $250, suddenly my calendar would have started filling up with $250, right? And then I wouldn't have had the time to pursue the other things. And oh, by the way, when the $1,000 opportunity came, I might not have had the time for it to quickly change what my number was from five, right, and, and on and on and right. on. So, so we don't take account for for what that loss is. And that's why one of my personal laws is you can't lose what you don't have. Right. And one of my next rules is all you have is time. Right. And so when I look at an opportunity and say, well, I don't want to lose it, I want to remind myself if they haven't said yes, I haven't won it, so I can't lose it.
1: Okay. And that's where you're talking about kind of the exit criteria and and, and it forcing
2: Well well the the forcing there, you to analyze that. That that that's why I'm a fan of deal scoring. Yep. Right. That's why I'm a fan of forced fun. But but again, what the motivation is. Is its loss aversion, its prospect theory, that that causes reps to hold on to accounts and to spend too much time on an opportunity. So, by the way, the other thing you have to do is a lot of education. Yeah. Yep. Yep.
1: All right. Um, next, I want to talk about anchoring. Which
2: oh, I love anchoring.
1: <sighs> well, so and 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 this I is and like I've all done all
2: Tversky and Kahneman today, by the way, Jess. It, it, it is all Tversky and Kahneman.
1: It is. um So I, I did do research on this. They they have heuristic like as as a category of anchoring, and I and, and maybe it's just going over my head. I actually don't connect how I'm not able to connect how what anchoring actually has to do with heuristic. Um, I think I understand. Well, anchoring,
2: anchoring is a heuristic.
1: It is a heuristic. Okay.
2: Right, All heuristic. Right. It is generally true. It is not always true, but it is generally true.
1: Okay. Gotcha. Okay.
2: So anchoring is a priming effect. Okay. Right. It 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 sets a stage. So did you know if I said to you, Did you see did you see Moneyball jackpots up to six hundred million dollars? Let's just say before, let's say we're in a I'm I'm gonna make a presentation to you today, I'm making my proposal. Mm-hmm. And we're small talking, I go, holy cow, can you believe it? The you see the, you know, moneyball is up jackpot's up at six hundred million dollars. Let's yeah. say we just started like, oh yeah, yeah, and then we went, then everything else happened beyond that. Right. That's scenario one. Okay. Scenario two. Can you believe the score of that game last night was six to three? Mm-hmm. You will pay more money for whatever I offer if we start off talking about mo- the Moneyball jackpot than you okay. would if the reason you heard a large number, right? And so without realizing it, so I say this will be one hundred and seventy-six thousand dollars. Okay. Still ringing in your head is $600 million, $160,000. Yeah, that, you know, <laughs> six to 300, right? Right. Right. Why in negotiation do you start high and go down? Right. You're anchoring high. Yeah. Right. Why should you not negotiate with yourself? <laughs> right. Everyone's afraid to talk about price early. Yeah. Why? It's your opportunity to anchor. Yeah. Right. Understand you are always anchoring. Okay. By the way, what's happening around you is anchoring. I might've walked in and there's a sign that says 3,762. There's a sign that says 13. That's going to influence us, right? We're getting primed by a whole bunch of different things that we are often not aware of that causes us to interpret things differently.
1: So. So are you saying that if I see a number somewhere before having a conversation, like a sales conversation with you, that that number that I saw can impact that conversation that I'm having with you, even though those two things are not related?
2: Is that what you're saying? I'm not saying that that number can have an impact. You're saying it will. Related. I'm saying that number will have an impact. The question is, what level of impact will it have? Okay. It's not brainwashing. It's not hypnosis. Right. Right. It's not, oh, I will. Right. But as you think about how you're crafting your presentation, you're anchoring in your presentation. You don't even realize it. Anchoring plays with framing. We'll talk about framing in another conversation. Right. But it's remember what we don't want to do is we don't want to think. Right. This, this is all built into we don't want to think. So how do we avoid thinking? Well, mm-hmm. we avoid thinking with heuristics. Right. Our brains are not algorithms. We, talk, we keep talking about com- our brain as a computer. Our brain is actually not a computer because computers are precise. Our <sighs> brains are not precise. They do not want to be precise. No. So what do we do? We stereotype. We stereotype everything. That's what a heuristic is. It's a stereotype. What we do is we associate. We look for something close and similar to give us a judgment, right? There's a, there's a, there's a strong pricing theory that some people dub the Little Red Riding Hood pricing approach. Have you ever noticed the, the proliferation of given options in three? Yes. You're always given three options, right? Small. Medium mm-hmm. extra large right <laughs> right so yeah. so did you know if you go back a long time ago, you know you, you, you used to be small and large, you used to g- get soda to smaller or large you went smaller or no large. i
1: didn't I didn't know that' I'm, You're not, TM. You're TM. I'm, I'm not old
2: enough to have experience smaller smaller remember correctly, I think you know roughly thirty percent would buy small I'm sorry, roughly seventy percent would buy small, seventy mm-hmm. uh, and thirty percent would buy large yeah so so then they said, okay, well, well how can we how can we generate more money? They introduced small, medium, large.
1: And everybody goes with the medium
2: because it's 20% the small, 40% medium, 30% large. Then they went small, large, extra large. 10% small. It's like 50% large, 40% extra large.
1: Yeah.
2: Right. You actually grew that number, right? <laughs> Why? Well, here's what happened. So I give you a small price, medium price, large price here. Right? Yeah. Well, the small's not quite enough. And, and, and think about this, especially because so much of what we buy today is intangible. Right. Right. That's too light. But that's yeah. $100. Okay. That's $100. Well, now all of a sudden, the $150, well, that feels reasonable because it's more than 100 And then your other option is $450. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's weight. Way... Well, guess what? All of a sudden, that $150, that looks like a bargain compared to $400. Right. That's what's happening. We don't know that that's what's happening.
1: I'm rethinking all of my subscription services right at this, this moment <laughs> and realizing that I've been played.
2: <laughs> oh yeah. You, um, I forget Dan Arley has a great visual of this and I, it was, um, it was the economist that did this. It was like um, digital only this um, hard copy, this mm-hmm. hard copy and digital. Yeah. The problem was no one was buying hard copy. Right. They did hard copy and digital all of a sudden everything like they jumped their subscriptions up not realizing well the digital was like all of a sudden people jumped in and, and I, it wasn't exactly that but it's something very very similar to that. Yeah, absolutely. We don't And and again that's why that's why this is so very much a revenue operations function because this has absolute positive impact on the underlying operational environment. How do you become more efficient without, without losing resiliency? See too often what we do is we become more and more precise or more and more restrictive to generate efficiency. Right. Yeah. If we, if we understand the behavioral principles, even just the three that we're talking about today, suddenly we can begin to still keep our flexibility but frame the structure in a way that, that the natural decision is here. Right. Right. Difference between opt out or opt in, right. Is, is. Yeah. Manifest. Yeah. Right. And, and so we can build more resiliency and increase efficiency when we understand this. And I'm sure you can see now we can also understand how it impacts what the, customer experience is, what the selling experience is. By the way, you know, one of my favorite questions, one of my favorite questions, I was taught by Dan Salt. Right. And I and so I always ask the question, you know, let's say we're having this conversation a year from today. I, as a matter of fact, yesterday I said, Let, let's pretend we're talking on December 29th, 2024. So you've had your, you know, fully implementation, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, I'm like, I'm sometimes crazy like this. I make you answer the question in the past. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Do you want to know why that works? Why prospect theory? We have grown 30%. We have our entire sales team working with the CRM. We have a unified experience. We have access to the data. We have, we have, we have. Okay. Okay. So now then I go, okay, so now where do we stand today? Guess what just happened? You just lost it all. Right. Now it hurts. I want it back. By the way, if I say to you, what do you want to be able to do? You go, well, we'll be able to, that, like, I'm going to bid on your pen. Here's the question. Do I want your bid price mm-hmm. or your ask price? If I get you to ask, if I get you to answer in the past, you're valuing it to your ask, right? If we're talking about the future, you're valuing it to your
1: bid. I'm really thinking through this right now. Cause I literally experienced this, this exercise as a, as a client. Cause we went through that. And,
2: and here's, <laughs> and the I thing remember I what is, what does everyone say? That's a great question. Yeah. People say that was really helpful. Thank you. And by the way, yeah. it was. Yeah. Right. Because one of the difficulties they have is they've actually never sat down and really defined what does the future state look like, right? We we have this old saying, maybe you've heard of it, Jess, seek and you will find. But you know what everyone skips? If you don't know what you're seeking, you're not going to find it. Yeah. Right? So So there's a whole lot of things that happen here, but again... If, if you think about the way we do things and, and, and how it's happening, like, so I asked that one question, what does, what does everyone else do? They have their 17 question profile.
1: They don't, they don't go to the past. They don't make them answer it in the past. So they, they're not, well, no, no no no. I'm,
2: I'm, I'm saying like, if, if we haven't even taught them that question, like what is the oh. typical, they go in, they have their 17 question profile. So yeah. tell me, tell me about your existing system. Yeah. Okay. Hey, that's really good. Guess what? We just went right into the jaws of prospect theory. So right. I'm now asking them to talk about what they have. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, pe- one of the things that people have watched me, they go, oh, you know, like, I don't, like, I'm, I, I surprise people because I, I never demo or rarely demo. Right. I spend They're, they're surprised by how little time I, I spend on their existing system. And I'm like, and my, my response is, I don't really understand why their existing system matters. matters. Yeah. The question is, what is it that we're trying to, right? You see all those things happen. And so now all of a sudden, I'm more in alignment with you. It's a different experience. Like there's all of these things that are going on. And, and people who don't stop and, and understand this go, what's the difference? It looks, it's basically the same thing, right? Yeah. That's, that's why these principles really matter.
1: Yeah, and I don't. I don't think people think about be, like behavioral science enough when talking about the sales process, in particular. Like
2: the thing that's always shocked me, Jess, is is at its core, sales and marketing is an influence business. Mm-hmm. Yet it is only recently, and still on the fringe, that behavioral science has been embraced by. Yeah. Fun. And yeah. by the way, we saw it yesterday in our own internal conversation around around <laughs> a topic. Well, I don't we like did. It, Right. Okay. Well, so
1: what? Well, right? yeah, it doesn't those, matter what you like. <laughs> right? All those things. Yeah. Actually, we did talk. We did hit behavioral science because then we got into why. Okay. I get that you don't like it. I get you don't think it looks pretty, but this is why it works. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. We did. We didn't get through everything we wanted to get through. Some. So. We'll likely have a part two on this, but
2: oh, Jess, um, hold on, Jess. Yeah, there are about three hundred terms.
1: Oh, I I know. We'll have so, other parts on this.
2: So we'll <laughs> we'll
1: have a series. Um, but I think the the two biggest takeaways that I that I have are, you know, creating creating those outside forces to go against uh, loss aversion, which we talked about. You know, in particular for the sales rep. But I think also when you're looking at prospects and then the sales process, you got to find those opportunities with your prospects and then you can't lose what you don't have. I mean, just thinking about that and how do you frame that? Those are kind of my biggest, my biggest two takeaways from what we talked about.
2: Well, there you go.
0: Go Chiefs. Go Chiefs. And that's a wrap on this episode of the RevOps Show. Each principle that was shared today was fascinating to me, but I think the concept of anchoring was the one that blew me away the most. It's so crazy to me how we can almost trick the brain to think a certain way just by throwing out things like high numbers. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to go subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you listen to us. Leave us a review and share the episode. If you have any questions you would like to ask Doug or Jess about the behavior science principles covered today, email me at hannah at or hit us up on Twitter at demand creator until next time. Remember can't solve your upstream problems downstream.